I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today my guest is Dr. Stephen Laviolette. Dr. Laviolette is a neuroscientist at the University of Western Ontario. His lab studies different aspects of emotion and cognition in the brain, including how disturbances in emotional processing arise in neuropsychiatric disorders like addiction, anxiety, schizophrenia, and PTSD. He has done a lot of research on how the brain is affected by different drugs, including cannabinoids and opioids. Broadly speaking, we talked about how different types of drugs impact various aspects of emotion, cognition, brain development, and the development of psychiatric conditions like addiction and schizophrenia. We spent a fair amount of time talking about drug interactions for much of the conversation, including how plant cannabinoids like CBD interact with THC, how CBD can counteract some of the negative side effects of THC, how these compounds can affect brain development when consumed during adolescence or by pregnant women, how molecules like L-theanine, which is an amino acid-like molecule found in green tea, can prevent some of THC's effects, how cannabinoids and opioids can interact in the context of addiction and pain management, and a variety of related topics. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can share the podcast with friends. It comes in both audio-only formats on Spotify, Apple, and other podcast directories, as well as in video format on YouTube. I also have a substack. You can find it at Mind and matter.substack.com. You'll find podcast episodes there. You can also get early access to podcast episodes a few days or a week before they come out if you're a paid subscriber. You can also sign up for my free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter at Substack. Once per week, you'll get an email from me with podcast updates, including upcoming guests. You'll get research highlights from some of the scientific research that I've read recently and found interesting. You'll get some interesting content and other things that I'm working on, including content I'm producing either on the Substack or elsewhere. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Laviolette. Steve Laviolette, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your lab does? Sure. So I'm a professor in the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology and the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Western Ontario. And I've been here since 2006. Um, our lab is focused on uh, quite a range of different uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, mostly using preclinical models, uh, animal models to look at the neurobiological mechanisms associated with things as diverse from, you know, neurodevelopmental effects of drug exposure, um, opioids, nicotine addiction, um, PTSD, um, anxiety disorders. And um, we, we take a range of different approaches. We are now moving a little bit more into the clinical side of things. So, so doing some human clinical trials as well, in addition to some of our preclinical animal work. So quite a broad range of research we're doing right now. Interesting. I wanted to start off by talking about cannabinoids and mm -hmm. some of the effects and the interactions between different cannabinoids before moving into developmental questions. So to start out with, um, I've done several episodes to do with different cannabinoids. So many people listening will have some background here, but let's just start off by giving people some context around THC and CBD. Can you describe what those cannabinoids are and what their key differences are in terms of how they affect the brain? 
Sure. So they're the largest phytochemical compounds that you find in most strains of cannabis, um, but they have very divergent effects, both pharmacologically and, and what they do in the brain. So THC and CBD have been the, the main focuses of our research in cannabinoids over the past 15 years or so. Um, THC is believed to be the primary psychoactive compound in cannabis. So THC binds primarily with cannabinoid receptors, um, not as strongly as synthetic agents, but it, it, it interacts primarily with the cannabinoid receptors and is believed to underlie most of the rewarding effects of cannabis. And it activates things like the brain's dopamine pathway, which is believed to be responsible for uh, its dependence producing properties in some people. Now, CBD, on the other hand, is, is a lot of our research has shown that it has almost the exact opposite effect from THC in a lot of different brain areas. So we found that CBD can actually inhibit dopamine and it can actually block a lot of the effects of dopamine activating drugs like amphetamine, hmm. which is really interesting because you've got these two different uh, phytochemicals in the same plant that are actually producing opposing effects on various neurotransmitter pathways. And we even see this at the molecular level. So for example, THC will activate certain molecular pathways that are associated with pro-psychotic effects and CBD will actually um, block those effects of THC or will actually produce the opposite effect on the same pathway. So it's really this interesting sort of push-pull relationship between THC and CBD. And it's quite, it's quite fascinating from a, a neuroscientific point of view. Hmm. So when you say that, that something, uh, when a drug can cause a pro-psychotic or psychotomimetic effect, what does that mean, basically? Yeah, I mean, so it, it means uh, quite a range of different things, sort of depending on how you're framing the question. So from a neurodevelopmental point of view, exposure to THC has been shown to increase the risk of developing symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia in some individuals that, are, that have certain predispositions to the to those disorders. But acutely as well, uh, it's been shown both in human studies and in animal models that THC can basically mimic a lot of the psychotic symptoms of schizophrenia, most of the sort of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. So things like uh, feelings of paranoia, anxiety, um, hallucinations in some cases. And it really sort of depends, it's sort of a dose-dependent effect. So the stronger the levels of THC, uh, the stronger the activation of that um, cannabinoid system, uh, you get sort of stronger activation of these schizophrenia-related symptoms. I see. So is that is that common for a drug to have that kind of dose-dependent effect? And, and what do we know about sort of the dependence of THC's effects on dose with respect to things like, like anxiety or like memory impairment? Yeah, well, actually, it, it really does depend on the drug. So, so THC and, and cannabinoids in general are quite interesting because they're generally biphasic. So um, some of our research has shown that the, the effects of CB1, CB1 receptor activation, which is the major brain cannabinoid receptor, has a very strong biphasic effect. So we've shown that if you activate CB1 receptors in an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, there's sort of this... Um, this dose range where you can produce hyperactivation of the dopamine system. So that's through a pathway going from the prefrontal cortex down to the midbrain, which controls the dopamine system. But if you go much higher, if you can sort of flood that cortex with cannabinoid receptor activation, you actually blunt 
that response and you can lead to this can lead to symptoms that are associated with anhedonia or blunting of emotional processing and sort of a shutdown of of the dopamine system so there's definitely this this sort of this biphasic dose response curve associated especially with THC we haven't really seen that with CBD um, which is interesting uh, because CBD acts through a different receptor pathway than than THC but but THC most certainly seems to have these sort of biphasic effects on how it modulates dopamine, for example, and then how it can modulate, um, you know, sort of going from producing side effects like paranoia to, to relaxation. Um, it really depends on the dose. And it also depends on the individual's history mm. with cannabis. So how, um, how much history have they had with the drug? Um, what is the state of their uh, their central cannabinoid receptors have they been sort of desensitized after years of use and exposure to cannabinoid drugs? That can also determine uh, what your initial reactions are going to be to to cannabinoids in general. Hmm. So, how does that work? The development of tolerance to something like THC and is that is that reversible? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, so the the CB1 receptors is a sort of a classic G protein coupled receptor. So, like most G protein coupled receptors, they can uh, engage in different sorts of uh, desensitization mechanisms. So the, the 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 membrane of the neuron and those receptors that bind to THC, for example, can go through various different states of desensitization. So the cell might respond to continue, continuous exposure by actually producing few of the receptors, or the receptors can sort of shut down their ability to bind the ligand, or they can actually become internalized into the cell. Um, so there's a variety of different ways that desensitization can happen. That's not just cannabinoids. That, that's things like amphetamine or, or nicotine is a great example of that as well. Nicotine, uh, nicotinic receptors are also very prone to desensitization phenomena, um, especially with continued exposure to tobacco. So we sort of see similar types of phenomena going on throughout the brain for different mm. classes of drugs. So, so. I think one way one way of translating that could be that um, if you're consuming a pro a cannabis product that contains THC, the effects could could be different, potentially even dramatically different at two different doses, and what those two doses are going to depend on on the individual and also what your history is, because you might have some level of tolerance. Exactly. Yeah, and and of course the uh, the, the purity of the THC is also a factor. There's a lot of um, individuals now that are extracting THC, they're producing things like shatter, which is sort of that, um, that purified extract of, of cannabis. Um, and that can contain up to 90% THC, whereas most strains of cannabis, even the high THC content strains go up, you know, 20, 25%, maybe 30%. But uh, there is definitely much purer forms of THC uh, isolates and extracts that are now available, uh, either commercially or people doing it themselves. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about this sort of um, interactive effect between THC and CBD. First thing I want to ask is what, you know, is it surprising that a plant would be capable of producing two drugs that have these kind of opposing effects, or is that something that's actually commonly seen in nature? I'm, I'm, I'm for, I can't speak too much about um, other plants, um, but I mean, from my perspective as coming from the neuropharmacology Point of view, uh, we were quite surprised at um, those sort of competing effects and how how consistent they were. So I mean, it was almost like we'd see THC exposure activating this, you know, five or six specific 
very specific molecular signaling pathways. And then we'd give CBD either before the THC or, or by itself. And we'd see literally either a blockade of those effects or uh, the reverse phenomena on those same pathways. Um, the, the sort of the evolutionary reason for that, it, it, I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, there, there, there is some speculation that THC is sort of the plant's natural defense mechanism because um, unlike humans, most animals don't enjoy getting high. The sort of, you know, they, they, they it, it's not, it's not, it's not safe really. You want to be sort of at, especially if you're an animal in, in, in the natural world, you need to have your wits about you. You don't want to be sort of dissociated from reality and whatnot. So um, it, it, there's some, some arguments that THC sort of evolved as a defense mechanism for the plant to keep animals from, you know, eating the plant. A lot of plants have those sorts of obviously poisons and other sorts of anti-nutrient compounds and whatnot. Um, but CBD, I, it, it's really hard to say um, why they're, they're opposing effects. There, there's over a hundred distinct uh, phytochemicals within cannabis. And at this point, we're really only scratching the surface. I mean, some of the some of the lesser cannabinoids like cannabichromine or cannabigerol, we're only now beginning to get a, a grasp of what they're doing pharmacologically and um, sort of from a psychiatric point of view. But uh, there's a lot more to, uh, to, uh, to understand. And then, of course, there's the terpenes as well. So there's all the monoterpenes that are associated with cannabis as well. And we're, we're only now beginning to understand sort of how they interact with THC and CBD. They, they call it the entourage, the entourage effect. And um, given the potential for different combinations and how different strains of the plant might have different profiles of those phytochemicals, we, mm -hmm. we could expect pretty dramatically different effects depending on um, just, you know, what type of cannabis you're, you're consuming, uh, what the growing conditions might be. So are they grown inside? Are they grown in, in, in nature? All of these different environmental variables can can have a huge impact on the sort of the final chemical profile of a cannabis type product, so, which is quite interesting. So what do we know so far in, in humans or in animals, but, but especially in humans about, you know, what's the difference between giving someone a given dose of THC and then giving that same dose of THC in conjunction with CBD? What are the effects that, that CBD is actually modulating there? So there, there have been some interesting clinical studies looking at um, using imaging studies um, that have looked at how CBD and THC produce different effects, both in terms of uh, sort of psychological cognition processing, emotional processing, and uh, looking at different brain areas. And they, they, they're also consistently showing that THC and CBD can produce different effects. So one, one good example of that is uh, studies that looked at imaging in the striatum which is sort of a, a, an emotional processing center in the, in the forebrain. And it, they show that CBD and THC can produce opposing effects on sort of the activity states of neurons in that, those striatal areas. And whereas THC was producing cognitive impairments, CBD was able to block, block a lot of those negative uh, psychiatric side effects um, without producing effects in and of themselves. So um, it's trickier to do those studies in humans because well, first, first of all, you need to you need to, you know, get the ethics approvals for those sorts of studies, which can be tricky. But but then, sort of finding the ideal dose range as well can be difficult. So, um, one advantage of the animal studies is that we can sort of control in a homogeneous population of of rats, for example, 
um, the the exact dosing, the timing, and, and all of these different tests that we want to perform. And uh, given the, the the natural variations in how people respond to cannabinoids, um, this can sort of be a bit of a confound with, mm-hmm. with some of the evidence from the human clinical trials. So um, it's it's really important to sort of converge both the clinical and the preclinical evidence together to get uh, a better understanding of how THC and CBD are, are really interacting in the brain. Mm-hmm. In, as a general rule, THC and CBD do seem to have opposite effects. And if you were to ingest pure THC versus ingest THC with CBD, the presence of CBD, at least at a sufficiently high dose, will mitigate some of the effects of THC. Yeah, exactly. And and and, and that's largely because um, CBD can counteract a lot of those central effects of THC. Um, that hasn't been the, the, me- the exact mechanisms in the human brain through which they're actually interacting with each other at the, at the sort of the receptor of the molecular level, that's not really well understood at this point. Um, but if you look, as I, as I was talking about previously, some of the imaging studies, um, they are consistent with the idea that CBD can block a lot of those um, uh, unwanted side effects of THC. Yeah. Hmm. But you still have the primary psychoactive effect nonetheless. Is that true? Well, that's a good question. Um, certainly in the animal studies, we, we seem to be able to completely block all of the effect of the psychoactive properties of THC. Mm. So we, we published a study um, in the Journal of Neuroscience a, a few months ago. Uh, we looked at an area of the brain called the hippocampus, the ventral hippocampus, which, which feeds into a lot of emotional processing centers. And what we found was that THC in that area of the brain produced a lot of the sort of the cognitive, the memory deficits, the emotional processing abnormalities, um, the the changes in reward sensitivity through modulating the dopamine system. But when when we administered CBD with THC, all of those effects disappeared. We were literally able to block um, all of those effects of, of CBD. And it came down to a single molecular pathway that seemed to be really important for that. And that's called the, the extracellular signal related um, kinase pathway, um, ERK1, ERK2. So that, that pathway is getting a lot of attention in terms of THC. Um, it's, it's, a, it's basically a, a cell signaling, a very sort of ubiquitous cell signaling molecule in the brain that's involved in a lot of different neuronal homeostatic mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't even know exactly why this particular pathway is so critical for uh, sort of those, those, those psychiatric side effects of THC. But what we do know is that CBD seems to block um, the activation of those pathways through, through THC. Hmm. So that's sort of where our, our research is now um, trying to get sort of dig down a bit more into exactly what's happening at, at, the, at the level of the single neuron, for example, to, to regulate that, that circuitry in the brain. I see. So you give animals a dose of THC, you see some abnormalities in a particular part of the brain, you can give them the same dose with CBD, and it completely, you, you don't see any of those abnormalities anymore. What's the relative dose there? Is it an equal dose of each compound? Yeah, we just, we did use equal doses. I mean, we've, we've been doing this for quite a few years. So we've sort of worked out different dose response curves. Um, these are, of course, are, are primarily central infusions. We do do systemic injections, or, or we've even moved on to edible administration as well. Mm. And we see similar sorts of effects. But these studies, we're looking at uh, central infusions into the brain. So they're, they're, they're very small doses. But um, in terms of their uh, sort of relative content, they were, they were basically equal molar doses. 
Um, and But what's important to note is that THC and CBD act through different pathways. So um, CBD is, is a really sort of messy compound. It interacts with a lot of different receptors in the brain. So um, there's evidence that it interacts with, um, uh, that it might be an antagonist of CB1 receptors, which is sort of the opposite of what THC does, um, interacts with um, uh, certain, certain elements of uh, GABA receptors, uh, opioid receptors, um, nuclear PPAR receptors. I don't want to, I don't want to list too, too many, um, too much uh, nomenclature, but the it's one a lot of stuff. A lot it is of a lot of stuff. stuff. Yeah. But the most important one seems to be the 5-HT1A receptor, which is a subunit of, which is a serotonin receptor basically. And the 5-HT1A receptor is quite interesting because it's, it's very highly distributed in a lot of brain areas that are important for, um, controlling emotion and cognition, areas like the prefrontal cortex, the, the striatum, um, the amygdala. And it, it's able to control the presynaptic release of serotonin and, and other pathways as well. So it's sort of a ubiquitous receptor, but, but pretty much, at least in our hands, all of the effects of CBD that we've seen were dependent on this 5-HT1A receptor, hmm. which is radically different from what THC is doing pharmacologically. So so that's quite an interesting uh, distinction between CBD and THC in terms of how they're uh, producing their effects at the, at the level of the cell, for example. So there's this interesting connection between CBD and this serotonin receptor, it's serotonin 1A. So that would be, so serotonin 2A is, is what people call the psychedelic receptor that a lot of yeah. compounds like psilocybin interact with. So this is a, right. a, a similar but distinct receptor. And is this related to CBD's um, apparent anti-anxiety effects? We think so, um, but we have we do have some emerging evidence that CBD can interact with a with a benzodiazepine binding site on the GABA A receptor, hmm. um, and that's pretty exciting because a lot of people are are you know uh, the clinical the clinical evidence isn't too great at this point because there hasn't been enough research done, but a lot of people will sort of anecdotally report that CBD produces uh, anti anxiety effects, and we've certainly shown that in animal models that CBD can produce anti-anxiety effects as well, um, either acutely or even uh, if you've had chronic stress, CBD can, can reduce a lot of those um, long-term stress-related effects. And, and that, um, that also, uh, in addition to acting through the 5-HT1A receptor, seems to interact with this um, benzodiazepine subunit on GABA-A receptors. And that's really exciting because most of the, the commonly used benzodiazepines um, have a lot of unwanted side effects. They produce dependence, addiction, uh, withdrawal. Uh, they're associated with long-term cognitive side effects, um, sexual dysfunction, all, all kinds of unwanted side effects. So um, it's kind of exciting that, that CBD might be able to interact with a similar uh, sort of anxiety-related receptor substrate in the brain uh, which, which raises the question, uh, does that make CBD a safer anti-anxiety alternative from mm -hmm. classical benzodiazepine? So that's, that's very early going research, but that's, uh, I think that's an exciting um, area for future investigation. Interesting. So, so CBD might be having anti-anxiety effects and it might be doing it by at least partially tapping into some of the same mechanisms as other drugs that we already know work really well for anxiety, but it doesn't have potentially uh, as many downsides as some of those drugs. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, the fact that the fact that CBD actually 
can reduce dopamine, that would be sort of the opposite from an addictive type drug, which yeah. we would expect you to do the opposite. Um, so that that's quite interesting uh, as well, just sort of based on its its known functions. So I'm interested in, in talking about some interactive effects between THC and other compounds that are showing up in cannabis products that are found in other consumer products that people are probably using fairly often. Can you first start off by summarizing what the, you know, what do we know about the effects of chronic THC exposure in the brain, either in the adult brain or the developing brain? Yeah. So we've done um, studies where we've compared exposure to chronic levels of THC, either in the developing adolescent brain or in control groups that were basically mature adult uh, animals. So these were all animal studies. Um, we've also moved now towards prenatal studies as well. I can, I can touch on that a bit in a minute, but, uh, just, just comparing adolescent versus adulthood exposure. When we gave the exact same sort of escalating dose of THC to adolescent cohorts and adult cohorts, we saw dramatic differences. So for, so in adolescent exposure, um, we had these long-term changes that were very much indicative of a schizophrenia like phenotype. So, um, for example, they had this uh, hypersensitization of the dopamine system. So we actually went in and recorded the, the, the dopamine neurons within the midbrain, and they were hyperactive all the way up until early adulthood. So this is after just 10 days of exposure during adolescence. And, and 10 days in, in sort of a, a rat's adolescence is actually quite a long time because they obviously have a much, much more condensed lifespan. But um, it was quite remarkable that these um, hyperactive dopamine phenotypes lasted all the way into early, early to mid-adulthood. And that was associated with all kinds of behavioral abnormalities. So they had cognitive disturbances, they had emotional processing disturbances, uh, memory problems, um, sensory filtering problems, all of which are sort of classic phenotypes for schizophrenia. And and, and also uh, activation of molecular pathways, um, pathways like the um, GSK3 pathway. It was dramatically reduced in the, the frontal cortex of uh, the adolescent exposed animals, which is exactly what you see in postmortem brains from people with schizophrenia and uh, other pathways as well, similar sorts of um, analogs. Following the adult exposure for the exact same period of time, um, and the same dose range, but after the brain had already gone through those adolescent developmental windows, no effects at all. Hmm. Uh, I think we observed one sort of minor memory impairment, I think a social memory impairment following adulthood exposure. But other than that, uh, they looked perfectly fine. They, they had no hyperactive dopamine system. They did not have any of these molecular changes. They didn't have anxiety. They didn't have any um, major cognitive problems, uh, you know, no changes in sensory filtering. So it, it, it really sort of underscores just how vulnerable the adolescent brain is during that period of development to, uh, to something like THC. Hmm. Yeah, I, I recall a study from a few years ago now where they compared the effects of t chronic THC exposure in, uh, in adolescent mice to older adult mice. And my, my memory is that, uh, you know, the adolescent uh, mice tend to perform quite well on various learning and memory tasks. You give them chronic THC and then you test them after the THC is gone and they perform worse. So they have a deficit. Whereas the old mice are basically the opposite. They actually perform worse at baseline 
because they're older. Um, and yet, uh, when you gave them chronic THC and then tested them subsequently, they saw an improvement. They, they looked more like sober adolescent mice in their performance. Yeah. Is that is that surprising yeah. to you or is that common that you would see that kind of developmental um, distinction between two different age cohorts? No, it's not that uncommon. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with that study, so I'm not sure what what if the, if the windows of time were sort of corresponding to what we were doing in our studies, but that's not that uncommon. Um, you know, the brain is sort of this plastic and very dynamic structure, especially during prenatal development and during adolescence. And those are the two windows of time that we focus on. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it becomes much more static after the age of 25. But there's still, you know, it's still obviously an evolving organ and it's, it's subject to, um, you know, the, the problems with aging. Um, so depending on the age at which uh, exposure takes place, you could either see, you know, potentially an improvement in some symptoms uh, versus a worsening. And a lot of that's also going to depend on if there's any comorbid uh, conditions associated with aging that, that might be relevant to the individual that's taking the cannabis. Um, but there, there, there really needs to be a lot more research done in human populations to get a better feel for how cannabinoids can either help or hinder certain symptoms associated with the aging brain um, at different periods of, mm -hmm. of, of, of the lifespan. So, so you give chronic THC to adolescent rodents for a good chunk of their adolescence. It might correspond to, I don't know, probably weeks or months of, of a human uh, consuming THC. Have you done the study where you would co-administer THC just like you did, um, as you previously described in the adolescent rodents, but you co-administer it with another compound? We have. Yeah. So we, we've, we've tested a couple compounds. So um, the one that we most recently worked on was L-theanine. So mm. L-theanine is, um, it's quite a, quite popular amongst the, um, um, various internet discussion groups and whatnot is sort of a cognitive enhancer. It's an extract. It's also found in green tea. Okay. So it, get, it had a lot, it was getting a lot of attention a few years ago as sort of a pro-cognitive molecule. So, uh, but what it also does is it modulates levels of various chemical precursors for glutamate um, and, and GABA synthesis in the brain. Um, so it modulates glutamine levels, it modulates glutathione levels, and these are really important chemical precursors for the production of GABA, glutamate uh, in various brain areas. One of the, the major, well, well, just to step back, and the, the reason we chose that compound was because uh, we had another study where we showed that adolescent THC exposure caused a loss of GABA in the prefrontal cortex, which, and GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter. And you see that in the brains of people with schizophrenia, that loss of inhibition in the prefrontal cortex leading to dysregulation of those neurons. And they also had hyperactive activity, so hyperactive glutamate signal. So basically an imbalance between uh, excitation and inhibition mm -hmm. in this area called the prefrontal cortex. So there's a lot of sort of um, complementary literature showing that um, L-theanine can normalize levels of GABA and glutamate in, in uh, specific brain areas. And so we thought, well, let's try L-theanine. We administered L-theanine in conjunction with the THC and we blocked virtually all of the effects of THC. Hmm. And, and so, so essentially what we found was that we had a normalization of the dopamine system. So we didn't see that hyperactive dopamine phenotype. 
Um, we didn't see the hyperactivity of the prefrontal cortex. Um, so that suggested that the L-theanine, um, and this, it wasn't a, a hugely high dose in human standards. It was about 10 milligrams. Um, and L-theanine is, is taken often in, in much higher concentrations in, in a lot of the human studies as well. Um, so it was a relatively modest dose, but it was sufficient to reverse, uh, sorry, not reverse, but block uh, almost all of those negative side effects of THC. So we, what we're doing now is looking at um, how that's happening. What, what is it doing? What is L-theanine doing to prevent mm -hmm. some of those negative side effects of THC? So on, what, what exactly is L-theanine? Well, yeah, so it's, it's basically an amino acid precursor. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's found in, in natural compounds like, like green tea, for example. And it modulates levels of glutathione, which is, uh, again, a precursor for the production of a lot of different um, neurochemicals, especially GABA glutamate, the GABA glutamate pathway. And um, so the idea is that, and this has mostly been shown in in vitro sort of biochemistry studies, uh, L-theanine can modulate the levels of those pathways. So um, we're now trying to actually look at uh, what it's doing in terms of glutathione and glutamine levels uh, in the in the prefrontal cortical areas of these uh, the rats that are getting the THC. So our, our, our hypothesis is that it's preventing that uh, dysregulation of glutamate in the prefrontal cortex. And that is uh, what is causing the reduction in the, the THC related symptoms. I see. So, so just to, just to summarize some of this. So in the animal models you have where you're giving THC for an extended period to adolescent rodents, they develop uh, they develop symptoms, behavioral characteristics, molecular characteristics that look a lot like um, a, a, an animal model of schizophrenia. And somehow mm -hmm. it has to do with this idea that the level of excitation and inhibition in certain parts of the brain is off. And is it fair to say that's why, like, that's what we would think about to explain why, you know, when you observe someone with schizophrenia or another form of psychosis, they're often, right, talking out loud or vocalizing or doing something that a normal person wouldn't do, that a normal person would inhibit themselves from doing. Is that due to the right. sort of literal disinhibition that, or imbalance that's going on in the brain? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of competing theories about that. So sort of the, the classical schizophrenia model was the dopamine hypothesis. And the idea was that you get this hyperactive dopamine system that leads to dysregulation of uh, emotional processing. And um, for example, you pay, you're unable to properly process the salience of incoming sensory information. So for example, someone with schizophrenia is watching their television set and they believe that the newscaster is speaking directly to them, for example. And this gets blown into some elaborate, uh, you know, paranoid hallucination. Um, and it comes down to the, the inability to, you know, sort of properly attend to relevant sensory information. Um, and this has been linked to everything from the dopamine D4 receptor, um, which is a subtype of the dopamine receptor. Uh, that was some work we did quite a few years ago. And also um, this idea that there's this imbalance between uh, GABA and glutamate. So you get this hyperactive output from the prefrontal cortex down to those subcortical dopamine neurons. And that hyperactive, so it's sort of like a, 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 an abnormal circuit, as opposed to just one area acting in isolation. You've got this hyperactive glutamate input to the dopamine cells, and that's causing that hyperactive dopamine drive. And then you're getting these positive symptoms of schizophrenia. 
Um, and so, so another paper we, we did uh, looking along those lines, we actually were able to uh, infuse a GABA agonist drug. So activating GABA directly in the prefrontal cortex. And when we did that, we were also able to reverse a lot of those negative side effects of adolescent THC exposure, which provided further support that is this GABA glutamate imbalance that leads to these um, cannabinoid-related abnormalities. Now, the extent to which that's the case in, in schizophrenia, independently of cannabis, that's not entirely known at this point, uh, because there's, as I said, there's a lot of competing theories. And a lot of different um, patients will respond differently to different medications that interact with different pathways. So um, and there's even debate as to whether or not we should think of schizophrenia as sort of a homogenous entity, or is it a, sort of a, a combination of different disorders with different underlying pathologies, um, which really which makes it even more complicated to, uh, mm -hmm. to, to address from our research perspective. Okay, but, but in the animal models you have, you give THC, you see these various brain abnormalities, you give THC, same dose, same timing, but with L-theanine, and it blocks most of those abnormalities from developing. And it sounded like you said that you're, you're not using like an astronomically high dose of L-theanine. You're using something that's comparable perhaps to what a human would ingest with, yep. with, with a product that has it. That's right. Yep, exactly. Yep. Interesting. Is it in anything else besides green tea that's, that's commonly consumed? Well, you can actually just pick it up at the health food store. So there's, mm. there's L-theanine, L-theanine extracts that are, uh, um, as I said, uh, a, a few years ago, it was sort of getting a reputation as being a, a pro-cognitive uh, natural supplement. Um, and, you know, there's, there's very little controlled evidence for that uh, in terms of the human literature. There's some evidence that, for example, and there's some evidence that L-theanine in combination with certain medications for schizophrenia can improve the efficacy of those compounds. Mm. Um, but those are sort of few and far between. Um, but yeah, basically it was sort of a, a modest amount of L-theanine that we were giving. And we gave it sort of uh, in, very close in time to the THC. So they were sort of being, the, the brain was being exposed to both of them at the same time. So the idea was that whatever L-theanine whatever was doing, it was doing it in a preventative manner. I so it was blocking sort of those acute and long-term effects of THC, um, but they had to be together at the same time. So it wasn't as though, um, we, I mean, we, we, we did not demonstrate that taking L-theanine after the damage is done can necessarily reverse the effect. That's a really interesting question in and of itself. And that's something that we're, we are going to be looking at that in the future, but we haven't, uh, we haven't done that yet. So that's sort of the next big question. Can you take too much L-theanine? Is there a risk of overdose? Um, I'm not too much of an expert on sort of the, the physiology of L-theanine itself. I mean, we were sort of using a, a translated dose range from the human literature down to the rat size. But uh, I, I've seen papers where people were taking up to 800 milligrams, for example, oh, wow. um, without any reported negative side effects. But of course, you know, it is it is a stimulant as well. So I mean, anyone considering taking L-theanine would want to consult with their their appropriate physician uh, to make. And also, you want to make sure that it's not going to interact with any other mm -hmm. medications you're taking if you are going to take it sort of as a supplement beyond you know drinking green tea, for example. I see. So it, so it does tend to have a stimulating effect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in some individuals. Again, this 
some some people like it's sort of like you know how you respond to caffeine some people get no reaction some people are yeah, wired yeah. for hours after so it's a lot of it depends on the individual and their own sort of genetic makeup how they respond to it um, mm-hmm. yeah I know that you've also done some research looking at the the relationship between CBD and omega-3 fatty acids. So so what have you done around that area? Yeah, so we've been looking at um, how CBD combined with omega-3 fatty acids can have synergistic effects. So um, this, I mentioned briefly before that uh, CBD is quite a messy compound. It interacts with a lot of different receptors. And one of those receptors is, is a nuclear receptor called the PPAR family. And there's a lot of different PPAR receptors. So it's peroxisome proliferative activated receptor um, in the nucleus. And it's it's related to once once the PPARs get activated, it's involved in a lot of basically cell metabolic actions. It it helps regulate what what sort of metabolic state the cell is in, um, how different proteins are produced, et cetera. So it's a complicated system that we don't fully understand. But um, long story short, um, omega-3 fatty acids and CBD both converge on PPAR receptors. So we've been looking at how combining those together, uh, how might that improve the efficacy of CBD? So uh, we have, we've got some preliminary evidence suggesting that the combination of omega-3s plus CBD can uh, improve its function at the PPAR receptors and can improve the ability of CBD, for example, to block dopamine. Hmm. So that might have some implications for um, the use of CBD as either an anti-anxiety medication or something for treating psychosis. Um, If you can improve its efficacy, um, and well, let me step back a minute. So, I mean, one, one of the clinical issues with CBD is that a lot of the trials out there, we're using these really, really high doses of CBD, sometimes up to a gram. Mm. per dose, per bolus dose, which is a really huge concentration. Um, Now, most of those studies didn't find any major negative side effects from taking doses of CBD. Um, One issue that has come up, uh, you may be familiar with a study that came out, um, I think it was last year or a year and a half ago or so in uh, pediatric uh, populations with uh, pediatric epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And they were giving them pretty high doses of CBD. And a lot of those kids were having some unwanted uh, digestive problems and nausea and unwanted peripheral side effects from those high doses of CBD. So if we can improve the efficacy of CBD at those receptors, that the, sort of the goal is to get more bang for your buck. Right, you know, right. Lower right. dose of CBD. Yeah. And that's like, literally, that's important in a very literal way, because, um, you know, when you're you're talking about hundreds of thousands of milligrams of CBD per day, the average person is not going to want to spend that kind of money. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's absolutely, it's an economic issue as well. So, so to summarize this area, so there's these things called PPAR receptors and you said they're nuclear receptors. So, so instead of a serotonin receptor or a cannabinoid receptor sitting on the outside of a cell, um, it's actually in the nucleus of the cell. Does that mean that when something like CBD or an omega-3 fatty acid interacts with this receptor, it's uh, more directly influencing the gene expression in that cell? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's sort of interacting at sort of the, the command center of the cell, as it were, and that's going to have impacts. Um, and again, we don't really understand exactly how this, these pathways work, but it's involved in things like cell metabolism, 
um, the activation of different protein synthesis machinery in the cell. Um, so it's not just going to be switching a cell on and off, for example, or controlling the presynaptic release of a neurotransmitter. It's actually going to be um, sort of getting into the master, the master control of the cell and, and regulating it from a, a more centralized position. I see. So um, before moving on to another topic, I, I was really intrigued by a, a preprint that came out some months ago. I don't know if you saw it. I don't think it's been published yet, but it had it had to do with SARS-CoV-2 replication um, in vitro, at least half the study. And um, without getting into the details of that particular study too much, what they basically showed is CBD in vitro was able to uh, change gene expression patterns within the cell. And based on what you just said, it sounds like there's there's a plausible molecular mechanism for why that would be. But but I guess the sort of the interesting observation, just as a as an interesting molecule, is that CBD can actually change which genes are coming on and coming off inside of a cell. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a, you know, it's a really, it's a sort of a nice lipophilic compound that can really get into the cell and produce those sort of centralized effects. I, I didn't, unfortunately, I, I didn't read that paper, but um, it, it's, you know, that could certainly be a mechanism through which it can, it can modulate different metabolic processes within the cell itself by getting to that sort of command center in the nucleus and, mm -hmm. and regulating it that way. Um, I want to talk about earlier phases of development now. So, you know, if you were to you know, thinking about thinking about the human side of this, right? If if a, a woman is pregnant mm -hmm. and um, she's taking a, a cannabis product that contains THC for any length of time, what do we know about the the exposure of a fetus to uh, exogenous cannabinoids like THC? And so, so I want to I actually want to I want you to talk about two sides of this. What are the effects on brain development of of a developing fetus? But also, why would or why are some pregnant women actually uh, taking such products, what are they treating? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really becoming a very important issue. So, I mean, there are there is some um, some evidence uh, that you know, depending on the population, you know, anywhere from fifteen to twenty percent of pregnant women in, in some jurisdictions are using some form of a cannabis product, uh, largely because uh, it can produce two things: it can it can relieve anxiety associated with pregnancy in general. And it can also have anti-nausea effects. So it's great for morning sickness. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's even anecdotal reports of, of pediatricians prescribing cannabinoid products to pregnant women to alleviate morning sickness. Um, you know, my concern as a developmental neuroscientist is that we don't really know what's going on um, with cannabinoids in these early stages of, of brain development. So, so my lab is taking two different approaches. Um, we're looking at both um, the, pre the, the, the effects of prenatal THC exposure um, on, the, on developing um, mammalian brains. So we're using animal models in this case, uh, rat models, basically pregnant rats, and we're giving them THC. And um, we're seeing some uh, rather disturbing effects, long-term effects in the offspring of these um, pregnant rats that are exposed to THC. So we're, I mean, this is pretty early uh, evidence, but um, it's consistent with another study that came out uh, from a colleague of mine, Miriam, Dr. Miriam Melis in uh, Italy. Uh, she published a study in Nature Neuroscience, I believe, where she showed that prenatal uh, THC exposure, again, using an animal model, uh, leads to a lot of the same phenotypes that we see following adolescent exposure. So they get hyperactive dopamine, 
Um, they get uh, cognitive and affective problems. We're seeing the same thing. Um, we're seeing uh, hyperactive dopamine. We're seeing abnormal levels of GABA and glutamate in various brain areas like the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex. Um, we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, behavioral cognitive problems. And we're seeing some interesting sex differences as well. So mm -hmm. male versus female offsprings tend to be differentially impacted uh, following maternal exposure to THC. Um, why that is, we don't know. The, the, the trends that we're seeing are that um, male, uh, de the developing male brain uh, is more vulnerable than the female brain. There, there seems to be some protective element in the female brain prenatal. So, so the effects are, they're, they're in the same direction. They're just, um, they're just more strongly expressed in male brains. That's what we're seeing so far. Yeah. And, and for, for a longer period of time, at least, and keeping in mind, this is very preliminary. Mm -hmm. um, so these are ongoing studies, but that's what we're seeing at this point in time. Um, there seems to be some sort of neural protection in the female brain. And that's not to say they're not affected. They are affected, but in different ways and um, in ways that are not quite as severe from a neuropsychiatric perspective. I see. Yeah. So, so obviously um, it must be true then that, that these cannabinoid compounds are able to uh, cross the placenta and, and get into the fetal tissue. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it all is also very high, it's highly efficient uh, in crossing into breast milk as well. Mm. So if you continue smoking while you're uh, smoking cannabis or, or ingesting cannabis um, while you're breastfeeding, you're also going to be transmitting the cannabinoids to, um, to a child that's breastfeeding as well. Um, what about CBD? Have you looked at CBD and um, is it safe to suppose that it would likely have a very distinct effect based on what we talked about previously? Uh, we're starting those studies now. We're, so we're looking at the effects of CBD, combining CBD with THC. Um, it's really too early to tell. The data is still, still very uh, preliminary. Mm -hmm. um, we, one of our predictions is that CBD, uh, if it's acting similarly to what we see um, in the adult brain, then it, in theory, should be protective against the effects of THC. But um, it's a little bit too early at this point to know for sure whether that's going to happen. Um, but that's sort of the hypothesis we're working on at this point. I see. Um, so we, we've already talked about anxiety a fair amount, and it, it sounds like just to kind of summarize my understanding of THC and CBD with it, with respect to anxiety in general, it sounds like um, THC can actually be anxiety promoting or help with anxiety, depending largely on the dose that someone would take THC at. And CBD generally has an anti-anxiety effect, at least at a sufficiently high dose, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't really have that kind of biphasic effect that THC has. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Based on what we've seen, um, we don't really see that biphasic effect. That's not to say um, if we ran things a little differently, we wouldn't be able to pick it up, but, but that's a fair summary of what we've seen so far. What about, um, well, it sounds, so it sounds so far like like there is clear evidence, at least in animal models, that chronic THC exposure early in development, whether it's adolescence or um, or fetus when, when, a, when an animal is pregnant, is going to have long-lasting abnormalities produced in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, is that also clear in humans? Is that, do, you know, do we expect that to translate? Um, how does that connect into the propensity to develop something like schizophrenia? We touched on that a little bit, but I don't think we dug into it too much. Yeah. And that, that's where the literature sort of gets, gets a bit muddy because um, we don't have too many really great sort of long-term 
uh, follow-up studies. Uh, the, 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 the limited evidence that's out there does suggest that um, children of mothers that were taking large amounts of can cannabis during pregnancy are more likely to have certain uh, attention cognitive type problems, um, problems with impulse control, uh, problems with emotional regulation. Um, but I'm not really aware of too many studies that have done like a long-term follow-up. These are really difficult to do because, mm -hmm. you know, people move away, they drop out of these studies. It's really hard to do these sort of long-term um, sorts of clinical work. Uh, but the limited evidence would suggest that um, there is certainly some uh, unwanted long-term side effects in, in the children uh, of women that were exposed to high levels of cannabis during pregnancy. Similar, uh, similar profiles to what we see uh, from some of the evidence from um, mm -hmm. mothers that were heavy smokers during pregnancy. So prenatal nicotine exposure is also related to some of those side effects. Um, we're also doing collaborations. We're looking at some of the physiological side effects as well. So we published some studies um, with some of our partners here at the university. Um, Dr. Dan Hardy is one of our major collaborators, and he's finding some very interesting physiological issues as well. So uh, there's abnorm abnormalities with placental development. There's abnormalities with, um, you know, uh, liver function, um, intrauterine growth restriction, uh, so the idea is that the the, uh, the 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 fetus is exposed to THC prenatally. Um, it's not just the fetus that's affected, but it's also the reproductive physiology of the mother as well, mm -hmm. including the uterus and um, and even the the maternal fetal placental circulation seems to be modulated as well. So it's this really sort of um, holistic uh, phenotype. Uh, you know, beyond the brain that, mm -hmm. that seems to be at play here with prenatal can cannabis, because yeah, obviously yeah. It's, it's having all sorts of physiological effects beyond the brain in the right, body. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose that's not surprising given just given how widespread the CB1 receptors are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And pe people often, you know, sort of, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. I mean, we're, we're, we're laser focused on the brain, but the CB1 receptor system is, is, everywhere. I mean, it's a ubiquitous system. It's one of the most ancient uh, receptor systems in, in, in vertebrates. So, I mean, it's, it's really critical for a range of physiological functions uh, well beyond just what's going on in the brain. So it's one of those really ancient uh, primordial uh, receptor systems that can have impacts on a wide range of physiological processes mm -hmm. in, the, in the body. Mm -hmm. I'd like now to um, start connecting the dots between cannabinoids and opioids. So there's a few things, a few things I want to mention before, before we get you talking about this. So you mentioned briefly um, previously that CBD had some interactions with opioid receptors. We haven't talked about this yet, but, but many people, and there's some literature on this, have talked about the kind of synergistic effect between cannabinoids like THC and opioids for pain management. The idea being that you can administer a lower dose of opioids with THC and then maybe uh, decrease the odds of, say, an opioid dependency developing. And I also know, um, and I've had Yasmin heard on before, she's, she's done research connecting CBD to addiction in the sense that it can be used to treat addiction or prevent relapse. Mm -hmm. So you know, starting, starting wherever you want, what's the connection between cannabinoids and opioids in, in the context of an addiction treatment? Yeah. I mean, so, so I, I'm very familiar. I, I know, I know Dr. Hurd very well. She's, she's a, she's a great friend. 
Um, and she, she's done some really fascinating work looking at how um, adolescent THC can, can, it sort of primes the opioid system in the reward centers. And, and um, she's shown in, in animal models that this can increase the sensitivity to the rewarding effects of opioids. So we've shown that, for example, a paper I was referencing before about the ventral hippocampus, um, if you expose the ventral hippocampus to THC, you can increase the reward salience of opioids. So morphine, for example. So we've shown that in some of our animal models and CBD blocks that effect. Uh, again, through that uh, ERK, that ERK pathway, and through modulating the, uh, the dopamine system as well. So very convergent types of evidence. Um, and uh, Dr. Hurd published a really exciting paper, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, a clinical study where she showed that CBD can blunt um, the appetitive effects of uh, opioid-related imagery in, in patients that are, are, are basically exposed to uh, images that evoke uh, opioid reward-related memories and induce craving. And so cannabinoid, uh, sorry, CBD can reduce craving for opioids. And that, that was really exciting. And from our perspective, that really plays ni nicely into our, our findings that uh, CBD can modulate um, the dopamine system itself. So we showed uh, a couple of years ago that CBD can block the effects of amphetamine. So amphetamine, of course, is uh, basically ramps up the brain's dopamine system. And we show that CBD um, directly in the brain, in, in this area called the, the striatum, can, can blunt all of those effects of amphetamine. And of course, opioids and amphetamine and cocaine and nicotine and alcohol, all, almost all drugs of, of, of abuse really, um, have that common action on the, the, the mesolimbic dopamine system. So by, by CBD blunting that drug-related activation, I think that has huge potential for CBD as a potential uh, treatment for not only sort of blunting the addictive properties of a lot of drugs like opioids, but also in preventing relapse, because um, if it can prevent the ability for drug-related cues to invoke that, you know, craving for those drugs, which is really the, the main reason people fall into relapse. They get, they, they experience this, these very intense cravings, especially for opioids. Um, that's really exciting. Uh, and I, I think, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure um, uh, Dr. Hurd is, is following those studies up. And, and that's an area that, that needs a lot more attention, I think, from a clinical point of view. I see. So it sounded like on the one hand, uh, CBD can help prevent relapse or sort of make the opioids less potent in, in driving the effects they do, but that THC more or less did the opposite. It could actually make someone more sensitive to the effects of opioids. Yeah, exactly. And probably again, through a similar mechanism through sort of uh, priming the dopamine system. So, um, and again, our, our study with the adolescent and the prenatal exposure to THC the, the common theme was this hyper drive of the dopamine system that lasted for a long, long time after the initial exposure. So it seems to be priming the system for drug dependence, essentially, because, because um, as soon as you've got, you know, sort of the dopamine pump is being primed to respond to any sort of psychostimulant drug or an opioid, for example, that is going to produce dependence through overdrive of the dopamine system, um, then, then that's where I think, uh, you, again, you've got these opposing effects 
of CBD and THC. Interesting. What can you tell us about, can you describe the effects of opioids themselves? How are they similar and how are they different from something like THC? And then um, I'd love if you could go into what we know about the developmental effects from opioids. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our research in opioids has, has looked mostly at sort of the long, the chronic effects uh, of opioid exposure. So we, we develop, um, we expose, uh, again, test, test animals to, to chronic heroin, for example, to get them basically dependent on opioids. And then we look at what changes in the brain. So there actually are some common pathways that uh, opioids and uh, THC, for example, act on. And again, uh, one of those pathways is the ERK pathway, the ERK12 pathway. So we published a paper a few years ago showing that chronic heroin can induce this addiction switching mechanism in the amygdala, which is dependent on hyperactivation of this ERK pathway. And uh, interestingly, that's what THC seems to do acutely as well. It activates that ERK pathway. And um, so that's one common substrate that we, we don't know exactly uh, what that relationship is in terms of mechanisms, but um, they definitely have shared pathways in addition to their, their, they both have this common ability to sort of overstimulate the dopamine system. Our research suggests that in the early stages of opioid dependence, the dopamine system is not even really an issue for, for getting someone hooked on, on, on heroin. But after chronic exposure, um, you get this oversensitization of dopamine. And then the brain sort of switches on this dopamine-dependent addiction pathway. Um, so this is where I think CBD, again, might be really exciting because if we can sort of throw that addiction switch off by, by switching off dopamine, that might have some real uh, some really important implications for uh, controlling both the process of addiction and then uh, reversing some of those long-term adaptations in the brain that are induced by opioid exposure or nicotine or, or cocaine or amphetamine. Mm -hmm. um, what about nicotine? So, so as a drug, how does it differ from the drugs we've been talking about so far in terms of how it acts in the brain? And what do we know about the developmental, the effects of nicotine exposure during development? Yeah, so nicotine, of course, interacts mostly with the uh, acetylcholine system. So the brain has uh, ubiquitous numbers. Again, similar to cannabinoid receptors, the nicotinic acetylcholine system is also very ancient and primordial um, in the vertebrate uh, nervous system. So there are excitatory uh, receptors. They control, you know, excitatory ionic transmission um, in, in, in various brain areas. So that's different from the, the CB1 receptors. So, um, yeah, so they're sort of cationic receptors. They're found throughout the brain, but they also impact dopamine. So uh, some of our research on nicotine has shown that sort of similar to opioids, the early phases of um, exposure to nicotine does not necessarily cause uh, an acute response in the dopamine pathway. But if you're chronically exposed to nicotine, then you slowly get this ramping up of the dopamine pathway and the, dop the dopamine pathway gets hyperstimulated following chronic nicotine exposure. So um, <clears throat> again, and that, that is very similar to what we find with opioids. So it's a sort of a similar mechanism. Um, and nicotine is also highly, highly addictive. I mean, it, it, some, some people argue that the dependence they experience with nicotine, um, it makes it almost as hard to quit as much harder drugs. Mm. Um, probably not, certainly not in the, in the, 
in the same league as opioids, but uh, certainly the um, ability to uh, quit tobacco dependence is, is really challenging for a lot of people. So it's similar in that sense. Um, we've been looking at the effects of adolescent nicotine exposure, and we've seen some, some interesting similarities and some interesting differences between nicotine and THC. So they both cause this uh, long-term hyperactivation of the dopamine system, but the nicotine seems to induce a long-term anxiety and mood-related phenotype, whereas the THC seems, seems to produce much more of a schizophrenia-like uh, behavioral phenotype and molecular phenotype. So that's consistent with a lot of the clinical evidence suggesting that um, adolescent nicotine exposure is associated with an increased likelihood of mood and anxiety disorders, not so much um, more severe psychotic-like disorders like schizophrenia, um, but it seems to be associated with mostly with anxiety if you actually look at some of the more clinically relevant studies. So, um, and what we've seen so far is that um, there's a, a, a different array of molecular pathways that are activated by adolescent nicotine, but some of the neuronal effects are very similar to THC. We don't know exactly why that is, but um, the end result is a very different psychiatric phenotype. So as opposed to sort of the, the sort of the, the psychotic sort of predisposition to schizophrenia-like symptoms following uh, chronic THC, nicotine produces this long-term uh, increase in anxiety and mood-related disturbances. Mm -hmm. I see. So chronic THC, chronic nicotine are both going to have long-lasting effects on brain circuitry, but the, the details of what that looks like are just very different. They're very distinct kinds of effects. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What, um, I'm not sure if this is your area, but like while we're on the subject of development and prenatal exposure to things, um, you know, we've talked about cannabinoids. Um, we've talked about nicotine now. Um, I think everyone has probably, or most people have a pretty good intuition that you probably don't want to be ingesting those things as a general rule. Um, if you're pregnant, um, alcohol would be another one where I think, you know, people probably have a pretty good intuition that, that that's what you'd want to do. You'd want to avoid alcohol ingestion if you were pregnant. What about something like, um, something more innocuous, say, what about caffeine? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, some, some, some women certainly do not drink caffeine during pregnancy or cut down on it significantly. Caffeine, caffeine is, um, is certainly the dependence producing compound. I, I can, I can attest to that personally, you know, um, I can't start my day without a strong cup of coffee. So, um, but obviously again, it, it, we're talking about vastly different pharmacologies and different receptor systems. So, you know, caffeine, caffeine has been shown to activate dopamine as well, not to the same extent as something like nicotine or opioids or, or THC, but it does interact with the dopamine pathway. Um, and you can get pretty nasty withdrawal. Um, if you know, most of us have gone through that you know, had to go a few hours without, uh, without a coffee and you can start, start getting a bit grumpy and, and, um, certainly nothing on, in terms of severity that you would expect from, uh, nicotine or opioid, opioid withdrawal. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's been too many preclinical studies looking at prenatal caffeine exposure per se. Um, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that area. If there, I'm, there probably are some studies out there, but I'm not personally familiar with them. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's an open question. Um, I, th I think most pediatricians advise. I, I think the official recommendation is no less than a cup a day. I'm don't no, no more than a cup. No more than a cup a day. I think are these when my kids were born. I think that was the re recommendation. But but, uh, but yeah, I, I think I think there needs to be more preclinical research into that as well because I don't think there's a a full picture exactly on what the effects of caffeine are. Mm -hmm. in terms of what, um, you mentioned a little bit, some of your ongoing research, I'm sure you have quite a bit more. What, what are some of the exciting problems that, that you guys are working on today? Well, we're really excited. We're moving now into uh, brain organoids. So this is, um, this is an exciting new technology. It's, it's quite, uh, quite novel. It's only in the past few years that has been sort of gaining traction in the field. And this is basically where you take uh, an iPSC cell. So a, a stem cell basically, from a fibroblast, developed from a fibroblast, from a from a human, you know, usually taken from a skin biopsy, a fibroblast, and then you you reprogram the cell into um, into a, a pluripotent stem cell, and then you can transform that in 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 vitro, and it develops into in, in this three dimensional matrix into basically a mi what they call mini brains, and so you get this sort of rosette like structure. And you put it into this gel matrix, and because it's in a three-dimensional structure, it starts evolving into uh, a, a, what we call a brain organoid. And a lot of the sort of the primordial structures of the brain are in those organoids. So, like you start seeing the cortical layers developing, you start seeing like a primordial hippocampus developing. You can move them in different. You can get the more uh, midbrain, so you can look at dopamine development. Um, you know, uh, striatal development, that sort of thing. So you can take these uh, cell samples from patients, for example. So we have samples from patients that had schizophrenia and we have cell samples from these patients and we're comparing them with uh, samples from healthy controls and looking at how um, exposure to compounds like THC or nicotine during this very, very early period of, of human brain development uh, obviously, it's an artificial system, of course, but um, we're looking at how exposure to those compounds during um, what roughly corresponds to about the first three to four weeks of prenatal brain development. And um, the great thing about this is that these are, you know, these are real human brain samples, mm. human brain tissue that we are basically recapitulating in a dish. Um, so we're able to uh, you know, draw much stronger parallels between the effects of these early exposed uh, drug compounds to what they're doing to both um, sort of the healthy brain and and brain and uh, brain tissue samples from people that uh, have suffered from very serious psychiatric disorders. So it's a really exciting technology, and we're just getting that off the ground now. But we're quite excited to see how how some of the biomarkers that we've developed in our animal models might translate into uh, what we see in the human samples as well. So it's really about convergence, um, translational convergence, because I think it's really important to, um, despite all the advantages of using animal models, there's, there's limits, of course, to what we can infer based on what a rat brain is doing and what, what's happening in the human brain. Hmm. Um, so the organoids give us this nice controlled environment to um, model these early stages of, of you know, neurogenesis and cell migrate, neuronal cell migration, for example. And, um, 
and look at how these different developmental trajectories might be impacted negatively by exposure to things like uh, THC or nicotine. I see. So effectively, you've got a method in the lab where you can take some human cells, put them in a, a special environment, and they start to sort of kind of develop into something that looks like the brain. And so now you've got this proxy for human brain development where you don't have all of the the operational and ethical restrictions um, that you have with a, an actual intact developing human brain. And you can do the more invasive, more mechanistic experiments you might want to do to understand human cells developing. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, one of the things, I mean, you mentioned this early on, and it's been at least implicit in a lot of what we've been talking about, but this idea of an entourage effect. Um, generally speaking, that would just mean that multiple compounds have an effect when they're they're given together that they wouldn't necessarily have on their own. Um, this is a very big idea in, in the cannabis industry and in the cannabis research world. The idea being that if you've got you know different ratios of THC, CBD, other cannabinoids, other terpenes, that could actually greatly impact the effect that they have for someone. Um, and, and what you've told us so far is that at least with THC and CBD, there is clear evidence they do have these interactive effects and you know having both together is going to have a very different outcome than having just one in isolation. Um, one of the you know one of the areas of research that I'm involved in, has to do with this. So what we did um, a few months ago, and there's a preprint on this, is we basically mapped out the, the full phytochemical diversity, at least with respect to cannabinoids and terpenes for commercial cannabis in the US. And, and we use some uh, algorithmic techniques, techniques to define what the different sort of profiles are that you see in different cannabis strains that people are actually out there buying and consuming. And long story short, um, there are different kinds of strains that have different terpene profiles and these different compounds found in different ratios. Would you say, you know, we don't know the answer yet. We don't really have the clinical data one would want to know for a fact what the different effects these, these different profiles might have actually are. But would you say that, you know, based on all of the, the preclinical work that you and others have done, that it's plausible that you have this kind of entourage effect where you have distinct profiles giving you noticeably different psychoactive or medicinal effects? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're quite convinced of that. And we have a lot of compelling evidence to suggest that uh, the combination of certain terpenes with uh, cannot, uh, CBD, for example, uh, improves the efficacy of CBD in various behavioral measures. Um, these are things that we're still uh, working out and, and working on, but we hope to have some publications out uh, early next year mm. uh, that look at CBD combined with certain monoterpenes and how those uh, might improve the efficacy of, uh, of CBD by itself. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm quite, and, and, and what, there's actually quite a bit of literature looking at some of these terpenes by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, things like uh, linalool, for example, or limonene. Uh, there, are, there have been some preclinical studies looking at exposure to those by themselves, and they've been shown to have, for example, anxiolytic properties. Um, which is quite exciting. And um, so it, it's, it stands to reason that there would be some synergy between uh, different phytochemicals and terpenes. Whether it's happening at the exact same receptor substrate, we don't know, but um, there is certainly evidence for synergy. Mm -hmm. um, the studies aren't out yet, so, so I won't ask you for too much detail, but what terpenes are you guys looking at in conjunction with CBD? So we've been looking at uh, mostly linalool and limonene, um, a few other ones um, as well, you know, but, but they, they definitely seem to have some interesting um, entourage-like properties. 
Um, so these are, so we're actually um, presenting some of this evidence at the Society for Neuroscience meeting coming up. Unfortunately, it's not in Chicago. It's all, it's all virtual uh, online now. So um, not going to get as much exposure, but, but yeah. So um, again, we're still working out some of the, the details of that, but uh, very exciting uh, preliminary evidence. Interesting. Um, I know that there's other people working on this as well. One of the things that I think is kind of exciting is, and, and I guess the question will be, uh, the question is ultimately going to be, how are you actually administering these things? But one of the things I'm interested um, to see, see some results come out from is um, these new like inhalation chambers that people are using. So instead of just doing, you know, IP injections or something in an animal, making it more ecological, I guess, compare, you know, you know, cause people are often inhaling these things. And I know that they've developed at least some labs chambers where rats are really inhaling vaporized cannabinoids and terpenes. Is that, are, are you guys doing that at all? And, and if so, or if not, how are you administering these things? Yeah. So we're not doing uh, vapor at this point. Um, we do hope to set something up in the near future with some collaborators for uh, vaporized formats. We're, we're mostly doing edibles. We're moving more now towards edibles. Mm. And to be honest, I think that's where the market is going um, in terms of an administration. Uh, I think edibles are ultimately going to be sort of the preferred method of ingestion uh, in the future because a lot of people don't necessarily enjoy the, the, the sensation of, of smoking the compounds and whatnot and, this, and the respiratory side effects, for example. Um, so we've been looking at edible administration of some of these different compounds and the, the effects are very similar. So, um, there, there's, you know, I think it's important to look at it from different angles, obviously giving injections is much easier, um, from a preclinical point of view. Uh, and it also gives you the advantage of actually targeting specific brain areas, as opposed to. Um, giving it systemically where you don't, you can't necessarily pinpoint where the actions are. And we're, we're, we're at such a, we're, we're at such a ground level of research right now that I think we're still at the stage where we need to be working out, mapping out these brain circuits that are responsible for the effects of these different phytocannabinoids and, and terpenes and what have you. Um, but having said that, uh, we so far are seeing remarkably similar effects, regardless of whether these drugs are administered uh, intraperitoneally or through an edible format. So, um, I think that's, that's quite, um, validating in terms of, um, the preclinical models in general. I see. Um, any final thoughts you want to leave people with just on sort of the general topic of cannabinoids or other drugs and brain development and interactions between all those things or, or anything that you want to, um, point people to that's, that's sort of, um, outstanding questions that you think we might answer in the near future. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think we've really been shifting more towards neurodevelopmental models, and I've been quite, um, uh, well, in many cases, very surprised at just how severe some of these negative side effects can be following uh, neurodevelopmental exposure, both to compounds uh, such as THC and nicotine. Um, you know, the, the, the mature, mature brain has over 125 trillion synapses. Um, and that those synaptic connections are, are very, they need to be very finely orchestrated during these early periods of brain development. So um, I think a take home message is that, you know, really look after your brain <laughs> during these, uh, these windows of vulnerability, because if, if anything has impressed me over the past decade or so, it's just how sensitive the developing um, 
mammalian brain is to a lot of different uh, external compounds. And I think there needs to be a lot more uh, care and, and public awareness given to some of those potential side effects. And more importantly, um, increasing funding for this sort of research so that we can identify biomarkers and maybe have a better idea of understanding who's more vulnerable, who's more likely to uh, be vulnerable to potential side effects from developmental exposure. Um, that's really the million dollar question because obviously so not everyone is going to suffer side effects from um, exposure during these certain periods of brain development. So I think the onus is on, on us to figure out who's at risk and, um, you know, developing more streamlined ways of identifying people that might uh, be at heightened risk of developing unwanted side effects if they do happen to uh, expose their developing brains to, uh, to things like THC or nicotine. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor Steve LaViolette, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.